There's this show on TV, you might have heard of it, it's called Survivor. Um, the reason you may have heard of it is I think it's in season 38. That's not an exaggeration. I think there's 38 seasons. Um, I watched the first one, it was amazing. All right, back in 2000. And uh, if you've never watched the show, it's incredibly entertaining. And um, I mean, I'm going on older information. There's been 37 seasons since the one I watched. But the one I watched was really entertaining. And one of the reasons is you're just looking at human interaction where they put a group of people together. And there's, there's all manner of scheming and devising and backbiting and gossiping and plotting and planning and strategizing and befriending and manipulating. Uh, it's kind of like a clinic in manipulation in a lot of ways because you're trying to survive. You're trying to outwit and outlast uh, these other players and, and, uh, and survive. And so here we are 38 seasons later and we're like, we get it. We're surviving. Um, this, as we've been going through uh, Proverbs uh, this summer, our text for this morning is chapter 6. And it gives us some incredible descriptors of the condition of the soul when we're in this grappling, surviving mode. The kinds of things that grip our hearts and our minds, the kinds of actions that flow out of our lives when we feel like we've got to connive and maneuver and manipulate and, uh, and, 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 and forge our way so that our future is secure, take matters into our own hands so that life works out all right. I mean, when we are in a survival mode, Proverbs 6 speaks pretty deeply to some of the things going on uh, at the core of, of, of our heart. And, it, and this text in Proverbs 6, I'm going to read verses 12 to 19 in a moment. It gives us some insight into what God hates. And the reason it gives us insight into what God hates is because what we're about to read is a direct contradiction of who our God is. The very opposite of his nature. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. A worthless person, a wicked person, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes and he shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He divides his evil continually, sows discord. Therefore his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. This is God's word. So it's abomination of the Lord's Sunday. Um, I don't know how many of you are so glad I came to church today. Wow! Seven abominations of the Lord. How do we, how do we grapple with this? You come to texts like this that speak very uh, pointedly at what God hates. They're using really strong language, like abomination. These are things that are just are abhorrent to God. How do we unpack this? How do we... How do we read this and relate to this? And as children of grace, how do we look, look at this and not just, not just close our eyes and bypass it and say, well, that, that, that can't possibly 
apply to me anymore. I'm a child of grace. We are children of grace. And yet there isn't one aspect of God's word that doesn't wisely guide our lives. So as we unpack this, we're going to look at a few things. And here's the first thing. You kids that are looking are taking notes this morning, you'll look down at your notes here. Here's the first thing. God hates sin because of what it done because of what it does to us. So you've got this strong language of hatred. These are abominations to the Lord. Right? We've got a God of love. We know this. We talk about this. We, we're convinced of it. We've come to his grace. We've come to worship him because he's a God of love. And yet we've got this, this strong text here and another text that speak of his anger. And the way that we need to understand God's anger is that God's anger is not because he is unloving, but it's because he is. You know, if you say that you love someone... And uh, then someone or something brings hurt or pain or loss into their life. Because of your love for them, you're going to get angry. If you say you love someone, and then there's hurt or pain or loss that comes into their life, and you're indifferent to it, and you have no emotional response to this, your love doesn't go that deep. It's because of the depth of our love that when we see destruction and devastation, there is now anger because of the object of the, the one uh, whom we love is being hurt. Now, when sin caused the world to spiral into darkness in Genesis 3, we see what this God of love does. If you go back to Genesis 3 and you read it, you're going to find that his, his response to the devastation of his creation is not to destroy his creation in anger. But he promises to restore his creation in grace. That's the first thing that he does. You unpack Genesis 3. He doesn't say, that's it, I'm done with you. Unpack Genesis 3 and it sounds a lot like, where are you? What did you do? Who told you? I'm coming to save you. You see, this is our God of, of love. And it's because of his love that he's got such hatred for sin. When you look at verse 12... There's a Hebrew word there. For, your, your Bible may say a wicked person or a worthless person. And, and the Hebrew commentators tell us that a more accurate, uh, well, I shouldn't say more accurate, but, but uh, the way to wrap our minds around it is this is a, a scoundrel. This isn't, that's not a word we typically use every day. You don't call people scoundrels. But the, the scoundrel in Hebrew, and when you look at other instances in the Hebrew language where this scoundrel is described, um, this is a person who's constantly working to undermine communities, constantly working to undermine and twist and manipulate personal relationships for their benefit. They're constantly in a survivor mode of like the only way for me to get ahead is to manipulate this situation, this person. Um, and they're in such deep self-absorption that they're actually not convicted that their actions are immoral because their actions are so habitual they feel natural. And when you look at verse 13, you've got this strange list of gestures this person is doing, right? In English, it makes no sense. They're winking. Their, their feet are shuffling. They're pointing. We don't, we don't talk this way. And for those of you kids who are in the, in the service, you know, the takeaway from this verse isn't like, okay, so no more pointing, no more feet shuffling, no more winking. That's not what, what it means. Um, if you've ever watched uh, magicians, um, they do this sleight of hand thing. You can tell I'm not a magician because I'm doing this with my hand and this looks like I'm unscrewing a light bulb for some unknown reason. But they have sleight of hand. The point is, 
They're like, hey, look over here while I'm doing something else. And this is like a Hebrew, this is like a, a Hebrew-ism. The winking of the hands, the pointing of the fingers, the shuffling of the feet. It's, it's, it's the ancient Hebrew way of saying, they're distracting you with certain behaviors so that you don't know what they're really up to. And this is habitual in the soul of the scoundrel. And uh, our, our immediate reaction, you know, to this, because this, this person is getting kind of sick pleasure from causing division, and they're constantly causing division. And our immediate reaction is to say, I don't do this. We can skip this. I'm not like this. Why are you preaching on this? But the wisdom literature of God's word, for those of us who have been saved scandalously by his grace, forgiven of all of our sin because of his grace, this wisdom literature provokes us not to say, why don't I just skip this? But it humbles our hearts to say, how is it that I have the capacity to do exactly this? To be like this? Where have I been like this? Oh God, would you do a renewal in me so that I don't continue to operate like this? It's the liberating work of the gospel in our, in our lives that we can look at it this way. Think of it like this. How many of you kids have ever been in class? The teacher is teaching. You're not really paying attention. And then they turn to you and they say, Paul. And you're like, are you talking to me? I wasn't listening to you. See, the whole book of Proverbs is like a teacher turning to us and going, hey, and calling our name, including this text about this, the seven abominations of the Lord. Hey, you said, what? You're talking to me? I'm a child of grace. I've been saved by grace. All of my sin is forgiven in Christ. You're talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Not because this, not because this is the identity of who you are, but because this, te- this teaches us uh, uh, that we have a capacity that we want to humbly examine so that we can live more and more to the imitation of the one who saved us in grace. So this wicked soul is so distorted, they get pleasure in seeing destruction coming into people's lives. And yes, we've been saved by grace and the word of God describes us as beloved and not scoundrels. But you know, when you and I don't turn to God in our pain, in our hurt, for his grace, you know, we often want those who are responsible for our hurt to come to destruction. I know in my own life many times that I have actually taken pleasure in the idea that those who have caused me hurt or, you know, pain, that they would come to destruction. I'm absolutely capable of this. This isn't my identity because I'm a child of God, but I, yet I can, I'm, I can slip into this quite easily and I would argue I'm not the only one in the room that can do that. And so the scriptures are, are, are very clear about this that there's going to be perfect justice by a God of perfect wisdom and perfect justice. If you look at verse 15, verse 15 explains the trajectory of what's ha- what happens to this, this person. It says, Their calamity shall come suddenly, and they will be broken without remedy. Wow. Um, there's two implications to that. There's a practical implication, and there's an and there's a eternal implication. Uh, the practical implication is this. Right? If you're dishonest and destructive and divisive, then once you're fully expo- exposed, uh, the brokenness of your relationships is described as broken without remedy. Now, I want you to listen very carefully. God's forgiving grace and his ability to restore you, it knows no bounds because his grace is unlimited. But the human capacity for grace and restoration is severely limited. 
And so we call God's grace amazing because he will take us back a thousand times. But you will not find a human who will take you back a thousand times. And that is why this text says the person who continually and habitually operates in this way, they will experience a relational brokenness that is without remedy. And it's not because God can't forgive you. It's because the human capacity of forgiveness is, is pales in comparison to the scandalous grace and forgiveness of God. So that's the practical implication. But there's an eternal implication to that judgment. And it's that in the end, all injustice will be brought to justice. That it's not our personal subjective ideas about what's right or good or true, but there's a divine standard of what is good and right and true, and, there's an e- and there is that eternal judgment. And this text makes us grapple with that. Now, it's, it's difficult for us as Westerns to get behind this because we don't like the idea of talking about a God of judgment because we're convinced that if we talk about that, he's somehow unloving. And so there's a lot of pop modern theology that will talk about God's grace like we do here at Redeemer Sunday in and Sunday out, We'll talk about the scandalous grace of God, but they don't want to talk about the judgment of God because they think that somehow makes them unloving. But what we find in, is that in the scriptures is that no, the judgment of God is precisely because he is loving. That he's not going to let evil and injustice go, go free. That would be a, a tragic miscarrying of all things that are just and good and right. So that's not the God that we serve. And the other thing that maybe I'll mention, which is worth mentioning, uh, is because as North Americans, we're, we're, we're the most individualistic culture in the history of the world. Because we're not, we're not, we're not by our foundation like a communal culture. So we're, and there's been good things about being individualistic, by the way, like human rights, like each individual has, deserves dignity and, and love. So there are positive things about it. But one of the, the entrapments of being so individual is that we, can, we, we have a hard time with the idea that there could be a standard that's not our own. And so we had to grapple with this God of judgment. But you want to know something? There's 37 million of us here in Canada. And there's more people in the city of Delhi, India, than in this entire country. And our neighbors to the south are loud. But there's only 300 and, you know, whatever, uh, what it is, I wrote it down, 320 million of them. So in our entire continent... We have ideas about, the, about a God of judgment not being a God of love, but you want to know that around the globe, there's 7.5 billion people, that many of whom don't share that view. And unless we're going to relate to the world with chronological snobbery, to borrow a term from C.S. Lewis, like we've got the, we've got the proper picture of a divine God, you've got to understand there are, there are 7.5 billion people, many of whom... Uh, believe in some form of a divine and many of whom actually don't grapple with the God of judgment and justice but actually expect it and actually find great hope in it because if there is divine justice and judgment then that actually alleviates us from having to in the the short little 70, 80 or 90 years of our life extract all of our judgment and execute all of our judgment because this life is all that there is. You know, there are... there's a theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian, and he's a professor of theology at Yale, and he wrote a paper on theological exploration of identity, otherness, and reconciliation, and that paper was entitled Inclusion and Embrace, and here's what Miroslav Volf says, he says, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence actually requires a belief in divine vengeance. This thesis will be unpopular in the West. 
But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And so this text here that talks about the things that God hates and the reason he hates them is they're contrary to his very nature. And this text that talks about how there's a calamity and judgment that's coming. For those of us who have placed all of our faith in Christ, this is uh, tremendously uh, hopeful for us. And the reason is because before a divine God, none of us stand innocent, but yet we are recipients of his mercy. And as recipients of his mercy, now we can relate to our neighbors, not with a tone of judgment and pride, but with humility and love. It is precisely our belief in, in, in God's divine judgment that actually releases us to not live our lives in judgment. Because it's his. Now, when you look at verses 16 through 19, what you're going to find is these seven things um, that are kind of that are kind of laid out. The proud look. Right? These are the things that, it, that God hates. Why does he hate them? The proud look. This arrogant look in the eye, right? Describing the attitude of the heart. Matthew 6, Jesus says the eye is the lamp to the soul. And God's saying he hates this idea of, of relating to your neighbor with superiority. The lying tongue. Right? In the Hebrew, if, if what it means to have a lying tongue, it doesn't mean you're just manip- manipulating facts. Um, it means that you're actually constantly manipulating how you're perceived by others so that you can avoid living by the same rules. When you look at other texts where it says this person has a lying tongue, it's like it's a whole way of life. They're constantly, it's like their whole, their whole life is a game of, of survivor where they have to manipulate the context so they're seen in a certain way so they can get ahead. Why does God hate these things? It's because in relating to others with a sense of superiority, right, that's a byproduct of, of disregarding God and living in autonomy. Right? Relating to others with a sense of superiority, that's one of the ways that we curate our own identity. I'm better than you. It starts in the sandbox, right? I'm taller than you. It's kind of like, you know, who cares? But that whole thing from when you're little, I'm taller than you, therefore I have more value or identity or whatever. You know, I have more, I caught more Pokemon than you. Who cares? But then later in life, it's, it's the toys and the bank account and the promotions and the stuff. And, and, and it's a way that we can kind of sort of put, you know, arrange the world with people in levels and boxes. And God says, I hate all of that. I hate it because it's nothing like me. There's no generosity and love and other centeredness. It's, it's a constant curation. If you abandon me as God, you're left with this crushing burden of being God. And as a result of that crushing burden of being God, the way for you to constantly feel validated is to find some way of measuring your value. But as children of grace, we've been freed from this. And so this now, this now instructs us to say, you know, even though our heart has a capacity for those kinds of things, may the Spirit do, a, do a, a continual renewal so that we turn from those kinds of things. It goes on to describe hands that shed innocent blood. Again, this is one of those texts where we say, well, we can just move on. I mean, why even bother preaching on this? I haven't killed anybody. Maybe not physically. But... So obviously, this is speaking in a, in a very practical, you know, the practical context is you would kill somebody if you had the opportunity to. You would kill somebody if it meant you could get ahead. I mean, that's what this scoundrel is doing. 
But in Matthew 5, when Jesus speaks to the condition of the heart, he actually equates murder with hatred. And then in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John echoes it, murder and hatred being the same, the same thing. You know, in a literal sense, murder commits an action that leaves somebody dead. But in a spiritual sense, hatred is so cold, you go through life relating to them like they're dead. And it's the same thing. I'm guilty of that. I've done that. We've all done that. We've all related to people like, that. that's it, you're dead to me. We even, have, we even have that little phrase. A cute little phrase to say, you're dead to me. Right? I emotionally murder you. Right? You just have this way of, well, there you have it. And so, God hates this. Why does he hate it? He hates it because, again, it's, it's curved in on self. And what the gospel comes to do through Jesus Christ, his life, death, his resurrection on our behalf, uniting us to him, his spirit in us, doing real renewal in us, is to get us out from that inward curved posture of selfishness and curve us out into self-giving love. Look at the heart. The next phrase that this text gives us is the heart that devises wicked schemes, constantly maneuvering and manipulating things to be to our advantage. Right? Not interested in character, only convenience. Trample people at all costs. This is what the scoundrel does. But really, what's underneath all of it? Why do you do all that? What is with all the scheming? If you were to lift the hood and say, what is making this thing move? It's a fear of the future. It's a fear of loss. It's fear of a thousand things. And because the scoundrel is afraid, they got to start pulling levers, man. They've got to maneuver that conversation, that relationship, the way that they're seen, the way they're postured. It doesn't matter whether it's the playground or the office or the, the, the place of recreation or the church foyer. It doesn't matter where it is. When this kind of thing grips our hearts or when we fall into this and we begin to operate in this way, it's this fear. And so we're scheming and devising. There's no peace, just panic. That's what's underneath it. But the but the, the scoundrel the scoundrel it's they're like a they're like a duck or above the water this thing's just like you know cruising along but underneath the surface those feet are moving the heart is moving the soul is at unrest it's in turmoil but as far as everybody else can see hey how's it going good but underneath the surface nothing's good now I know that this is not a descriptor of us. Because we're children of grace. But we have the capacity for this, all of us. And so may God open our eyes to see that today. So that we turn and live to the glory of his grace. To the glory of the one who saved us. The text goes on to say, uh, describe feet that, feet that rush to do evil. And again, this is a, a Hebrew figure of speech. Because it's not just the physical feet. Blah, 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 that run. It's the whole person. It's like, uh, it's like Augustine said. Wherever I go, my love is carrying me. The feet that rush to evil. It's like a sick pleasure in seeing the downfall. It's like this sick satisfaction. This terrible enthusiasm for what's immoral and unethical and kind of getting a rush from it. Goes on to speak about a false witness. And this is a person that subverts justice in the courts. They promote, they promote the decay of communities. Uh, and ultimately this kind of this kind of bearing false witness, this kind of lie to destroy people's reputations, right? The gossiper, the, the, 
the scoffer, um, this kind, these kind of lies, they subvert justice. It's the, they're, the, they're the shipwreck of relationships. It's the shipwreck of trust. It's the shipwreck of community. It's the shipwreck of society. Why are so many of us so jaded when it comes to conversations around politics? It's because we've constantly encountered the, the lying and the conniving and the backroom deal. I mean, we, there's just been so much of it. It's difficult. As Christians, we don't want to become apolitical and just kind of be like, who cares about it? Because we need to care deeply about the city and be thoughtful as we go to the polls and do these kinds of things. But, 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 but it, it's hard to do. Because we've been, it's hard to do because we've, we've seen the shipwreck of, of society as a result of lies. But before we get on our high horses and go, ah, those politicians like the Pharisees, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that politician. The point of this text is that the teacher's grappling for our attention to say, how do I have the capacity for this? To bear this false, to bear this false witness, to do it. What's underneath all of it? Sowing the discord among the brethren is the final, is the final uh, descriptor. And some Hebrew commentators argue that the reason it's listed as the final one, it's a literary device in Hebrew parallelism, that it's listed last because it's, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's culminating to this, which is the thing that God ultimately hates, which is the, it's just the divi- division in community, that there's not love but hatred, that there's not a humility but a pride. And, and so some commentators argue for that. Sowing the discord among the brethren, the brethren, this emphatic description of the conduct of a person that's constantly disturbing peace, pitting friends against each other, talking to this family member, then going over and talking to that one, and then boom, Thanksgiving comes and it's level nine, right? The person that's at the office and hey, the meeting's over, and then they always have meetings after the meeting that you're not invited to, and the, the person that's in the playground and you know always conniving and manipulating so that this friend group now this person doesn't like this one i mean there's an endless catalog of how this of how this all kind of plays out plays out in churches right and uh and 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 why is it it's because there's this in that moment when we when it's in that moment when we forget that our lives are in the hand of god our soul is at such unrest. We've got to manipulate circumstances and situations like we are God. The gospel liberates us from all that. It liberates us from needing to do that, from falling back into this. It liberates us from it because we don't hold the weight of the world. But if you, if you are your own God, you do hold the weight of the world. If, if there is no God and there is no divine justice and there is, in the end, if perfect ju- judgment and justice isn't going to occur, then you've got to extract perfect judgment and justice right here, right now, in this life. And so it will be difficult to, to, it will be difficult to sit back and, and, and have peace in your soul when there's calamity going on because, there's, because you're your own God in that context. So God hates sin because of what it does to us. The second thing is that the Son bore injustice and sin to liberate us. You know, I'm just going to quickly reread this, and I'm going to show you that every form of this destruction and sin on this list, it was actually done to Jesus. Watch this. A worthless person, a scoundrel, walks with a perverse mouth. Verse 13. 
He winks his eyes, he shuffles his feet, he points his fingers. You know, the religious leaders, they called Jesus good teacher while they were plotting his death. Judas kissed him while he was handing him over. Verse 16, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abominations to him. Verse 17, a proud look. You know, Pilate looked Jesus right in the face after Jesus said he was the truth and said, what is truth? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. You know, those that sought to kill Jesus, they lied about his motives. Right? They painted him. They had false witnesses in court. It was a kangaroo court. It wasn't just. It was, it was unjust. Verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift running to evil. You know, the crucifixion happened at the Passover, right? When the high priest's feet should have been running swiftly to find a lamb to sacrifice, their, their feet were running swiftly to crucify Jesus. The ultimate sacrifice. Verse 19. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. You know, the religious leaders, they turned the crowds around. The crowds that were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna! The religious leaders went and they turned them around and five days later they're all yelling, crucify him. You know, God hates sin because of what it done to, does to us, but the Son of God bore injustice and sin. He bore it to liberate us. We don't have a God who just sits back and crosses his arms and goes, you know what, this is the stuff that I hate. Try not to do that. We have a God who came and bore everything that he hates to liberate us from it. The good news of the gospel is that the cross is where mercy and justice intersect. According to God's divine justice, the perfect loving life of Jesus, all of us deserve judgment, but because of God's grace for us in Jesus, we're all going to get undeserved mercy. This is the gospel. According to God's perfect justice, what we actually deserve is to hear the divine judge say, you're guilty. But what we will actually hear because of Christ's grace is not guilty. And so now, as children of grace, the Spirit produces what God loves in us. God hates sin because of what it does to us. The Son has come, and He bore that sin to liberate us. And now, the Spirit who is in you is producing in you what God loves. And I'm going to close with this. You know, we can learn to manage our emotions and our behaviors with techniques, but the gospel... God's goal in the gospel is heart-level renewal. It's not merely managing what flows out of us, but over the course of our life, healing us so that something different flows out of us, so that something different is attractive to us. The reason why you and I have the capacity to slip back into these things listed in Proverbs 6 is because at some point, in, a, in, in the right circumstance, that option seems attractive to us. And the work of the Holy Spirit in your life now is to do renewal so that those sins listed in Proverbs 6 are no longer attractive to us. God's wisdom is not merely an ancient written word. It's a living word. Christian faith is not a static life adhering to precepts. It's a dynamic life united to a person. The wisdom of God, it grows in you as His word guides you precisely because... He's united to you. And so when God's word says, thou shalt not, by grace our hearts respond, I will not, because we start to want different things. 
And so as this text gives us insight into seven things that God hates, right? because to walk in them, it's a distortion of his intentions for you. And now the Spirit is producing what God actually loves in you, which is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and gentleness, and self-control by the power of his grace. Let's pray.